Welcome to episode 225 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This week, we're going to revisit uh, beginner advice or beginner's advice. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky in this podcast. Just anybody else who likes going out under the stars. So Shane, in the last episode, we talked briefly about uh, the great emails we get from listeners and uh, Chef Ozzy had sent us uh, what I think is an excellent uh, suggestion on uh, revisiting some beginner advice. Uh, sort of what are your thoughts at the outset of this uh, episode? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, so Ozzy had written and said, uh, maybe I'll just read this and then we can kind of work through it. How does that sound? Yeah, sure. All right. So Ozzy wrote and said, uh, hey, guys, what's up? Here's a picture of the eclipse. Thanks for sending that, Chef. Uh, from Sunday morning or Sunday night slash morning. Uh, he said that his uh, wife of all people had woken him up and, uh, and she was a person who had said, if you had seen one star, then you'd seen them all. But uh, they went outside with his uh, Solstron uh, 660 millimeter focal length, uh, four inch telescope. And he put his uh, iPhone up to the eyepiece and snapped away. And uh, then he said, I hope you guys uh, got to see it. Uh, and that he loves the podcast. Uh, I seriously look forward to new releases every week, and, but here's a suggestion for the show. And I thought this was pretty good. Um, he said, uh, summertime is coming up and the pandemic is uh, coming to an end and people are wanting to uh, get the house again. So uh, please do a show again for beginners about what you can expect to see with different size telescopes, how to get rid of uh, star tails, uh, etc. cetera just a suggestion. So I wrote him and said, love the suggestion. And do you have any like sort of further guidance or topics? And then he wrote back with the following. He said, maybe go over these sort of things. Um, F-stop, why it's important, what to expect when looking through a telescope and the difference between stars and planets, what they look like. Um, and, and then just some general sort of beginner advice on using the telescope um, how to prevent or fix star spikes, um, using peripheral version, tapping on the telescope, uh, looking for and finding nebulosities, star clusters, globular clusters, um, using Bar Barlow's, the Bortle scale, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, appreciate that. So maybe we can just uh, unpack that uh, a little bit, Shane, and uh, maybe we'll start with this. Uh, this seems like a, a pretty simple one, um, but I think it is pretty important and not often talked about. What can you expect to see through different size telescopes? Pretty good question. Yeah. Well, um, you know, the, uh, other than like, say really faint galaxies or really faint stars, um, you don't need a huge telescope to see a lot of stuff in the sky. Um, mm. you know, you can see a lot of bright nebulas, uh, bright galaxy, bright deep sky objects. There's double stars. There's the solar system objects, uh, you know, a, a 50 millimeter telescope can show you some of that stuff. Now, as you get more aperture, um, you're able to find, or you're able to see more detail, uh, sometimes more structure, um, sometimes different colors, things enhance, uh, as you go up in aperture, typically, uh, with, uh, whatever you're looking at up in the sky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Um, and, and you're right. I totally agree. There, there's in, in my book anyway, there's not as much uh, difference that, that one might expect when you actually line up uh, two different size scopes. So when I had my five inch uh, apocrymat, like really good five inch uh, refractor set up next to Mark Bratton's uh, 18 inch telescope. And we were both like kind of surprised um, that they were really more similar than different. And, and also we had some beginners around and we had them look through it 
and give us their impressions without kind of telling them what we were doing. And, uh, and they, you know, a beginner actually really couldn't see very much difference at all between, uh, you know, uh, 12 inches, you know, in, in aperture difference for 13 inches, I guess. So yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of interesting to, uh, to see that, uh, but yeah, it typically anything that's that's fairly bright and worth you know sort of worth showing to beginners um, is visible in a five inch and uh, is is more visible in the eighteen inch. But it's not it's not that much of a jump. You'll see just a little bit more. Might be a little bit easier to see, but it's it's sort of marginal, isn't it? It's more marginal than you think. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And maybe my biggest eye opener, pun intended, I guess, <laughs> was um, last Mars opposition. I had just received my TAC uh, 76 millimeter. And um, prior to that, I think the small, well, I had looked at Mars once or no, a few times actually through uh, some vintage Tasco telescopes, like 60 millimeter class, mm -hmm. uh, and was surprised at what I could see through those. But mm -hmm. that when I, when I was using the Tascos, it was a bad Mars opposition because most of the planet was uh, covered in a dust storm. So you really couldn't yeah. see anything. Um, so anyway, fast forward to the last opposition using a three inch refractor. And I used that exclusively for the entire opposition and it blew my mind what I could see with it. Yeah. Um, now I know if I would have had more aperture, I probably would have been able to um, maybe see some of the finer surface details or, or just add a little bit more um, uh, you know, of the extent of those to what I was seeing, but for the most part, I think what you were seeing in your four inch, uh, I was seeing in the three inch, just maybe yeah. not quite as large. And I, you know, I think you probably would have seen just a little bit more with the extra aperture, but it was surprising how yeah. much I saw with a three inch. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's not really exactly what you think it's going to be when you're, when you're starting out now, don't get me wrong. I, I absolutely love it when uh, somebody shows up with a with a nice uh, big telescope, um, and I've been fortunate to to look through telescopes uh, up to and including twenty five inches quite quite a few times, and uh, and certainly appreciate the opportunities that that friends and uh, and and acquaintances out in the night sky have given me, like like when Mark's brought out his eighteen quite a few times, and especially when Mike brings his twelve inch out, uh, which I've probably looked through more than just about any other uh, instrument other than my own. Um, certainly appreciate that, but I, I guess like the main thing that that I think about in in the differences is that um, it's it's really those subtle details, right? So, for example, um, one night I had I forget what telescope I had, maybe it was my hundred millimeter or my sixty, and Mike had his twelve inch uh, going, and uh, I was looking at Andromeda, and so was he, the Andromeda Galaxy. Now, through my telescope. Um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this huge field of view and then we can see Andromeda sort of floating in this uh, field of view and it's all very sharp and um, it's nice. And I can see the dust lane and, you know, I can see some of the other subtle details. But then when you go to the 12 inch, um, that dust lane was just strikingly apparent, right? Like it's, it's just obvious to see. And then um, some of the other star clouds are visible. And I know when you had a 12 inch, you you spend a lot of time hunting down something like, um, uh, I forget what, like the G1 or G3 or whatever it is, globular cluster that's visible um, there. And, and honestly, um, I don't know that I could see it in my five inch really. So I've, I've never even bothered trying to hunt it down. Um, so you could see it, but it's, you know, it's a challenging thing to see. So some of that stuff is challenging to see, um, even, even through these larger telescopes, but that's really what they, what they excel at. 
And a lot of the time, uh, somebody who's new to astronomy, um, you know, that that's really not what they're going to see anyway. They're just trying to maybe find the Andromeda galaxy in the first place. So oftentimes I think they, they should just get the smaller, wider field instrument. But, uh, um, but certainly I, you know, whatever people think is going to float their boat, I, I think uh, they should get because uh, so many times I've been wrong on recommending gear that, uh, <laughs> that it's kind of meaningless to me now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good points about the galaxy stuff, like where the big apertures uh, really, you know, are my preference is with galaxies and uh, globular clusters. Um, yeah. You know, my smaller refractors, you know, I, I find the globular clusters, but they're really just like a, a, like a puff of light and like a round fuzzy, you know, object, uh, like even M13 with like my 76 millimeter really isn't all that spectacular other than, you know, it's just this bright patch. Yeah. Now you put a 12 inch reflector on that, or, or, you know, even an eight inch, um, you're starting to really, uh, break apart that globular cluster. You're seeing some of the like arms of stars coming off of it. Um, in fact, you're seeing a lot of individual stars within that cluster and the, yeah. the more aperture you have, the more you see of that. And then similarly, you know, smaller telescopes will show you a galaxy, but it's really just like, you're just seeing the light. You're probably not seeing the structure on most of these galaxies. Now you take a 12 inch to a dark site and you start to see the spiral arms of M51. Um, and that's, that's an impressive view. So um, you know, that's certainly where I really, really enjoy the bigger apertures with those objects. Yeah. One thing that you do lose in the, in the larger apertures, I'm going to dive into this uh, really quick is, uh, like you can lose a little bit of context, right? So for example, when we're looking at, um, M31, the Andromeda galaxy through Mike's 12 inch, um, now through my, uh, really small wide field scope, you can see like a lot of the stars around you can see the galaxy just occupies, um, uh, you know, maybe you know, half or two thirds, they fill the view, but you, you can really star hop to it easy. It's easier to aim. You can kind of, you know, if you're looking at the Milky way with my uh, little telescope, you're going to see uh, multiple objects in the same field of view. You might see M16 and 17 in the same field of view, or you can see um, M20, M21 and the Lagoon Nebula all together in the same field of view. So you get this huge wide expanse. Now, if you point the 12 inch at these things, you're just going to really be looking at each individual object you're, and you're going to see a lot more detail than, than I have in my smaller scopes. And, and then what I witnessed is this is that typically people that have, um, and, and like Mike is a good example to kind of pick on him a bit, but he's got the 12 inch and then um, to kind of get that greater overall context, which I know he enjoys quite a bit as well. Well, we'll share views through our telescopes quite a bit. And then in addition to that, he has those uh, uh, Canon 15 by 50 uh, binoculars that give him uh, four and a half or just about five degree field of view. So those those binoculars give him that that kind of contextual uh, framing of those objects. And oftentimes he'll have the two going at the same time and be kind of going back and forth and, uh, and, and enjoy that wide field, low power view through the binocular. And then the zoomed up, um, you know, huge light gathering capability of, of the 12 inch instrument. And that is, that is a beautiful combination. And honestly, I think that is such a great combination. There's been nights where I've gone and set up and hardly ever even looked through my telescope and just switch back and forth with Mike looking through his binoculars and, and his 12 inch. And always, uh, I, I appreciate the views that he shares uh, when he sets it up like that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, a lot of fun to observe like that. Yeah. Um, the next one, and this is, this is a really good question. I thought I, I and honestly, I wouldn't have put this in a beginner's episode. 
Um, but uh, Chef asked us to address it. And uh, when I kind of thought about it, I thought, this is a really good question. What is F-stop uh, and why is it important? Yeah. So with some of his comments, I wasn't sure if he's referring to like photographic uh, or like for photographic purposes, like with star tails and, and F-stop because F-stop is more of a, a photographic term, but, yes. um, you know, it's, it's your focal ratio. Um, so your aperture divided by your focal length and, mm-hmm. you know, it, it dictates a few things. Um, one is how wide, uh, or the potential for your field of view. Um, so, mm-hmm. um, like a faster telescope. So that would be a lower, F stop or a lower focal ratio, Mm -hmm. uh, will show you a wider field of view. Mm -hmm. Um, now on the other side of that, it, it won't have as much magnification potential as a a longer or slower focal ratio. Mm -hmm. Um, and also uh, a fast focal ratio is kind like, it's really hard on your eyepieces, meaning, um, the, the cone of light is really quite severe. And if you don't have like, you know, say kind of higher end eyepieces, the edge of the field of the eyepiece becomes distorted on a, in a real fast telescope. Yeah. And depending on the, the eyepiece and depending on how fast that scope is, sometimes those aberrations can really consume a large portion of that field of view. Mm-hmm. Um, now on a, a longer focal ratio telescope, um, the longer the focal length, the easier it is on eyepieces. And if you get really long, like say F 15 ish, uh, just about any eyepiece you put in there is going to look great right to the edge. Um, because yeah. it's just a lot easier for the optics to handle that light cone. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I thought it was a good question because, um, oftentimes when people are coming from the, the photography world or maybe more familiar with photography, than uh, th- than telescopes, um, the these the f stop and you know the focal length and all this um, have a little bit of a different uh, meaning. Now I, I don't, I'm not a photographer or anything like that, but um, like I know when when you're talking about uh, f stop with uh, with cameras, um, from what I from what I've been able to gather is that the faster um, that f number. So for example, an f three point six we say is faster than an F6 and anything above about F6, we might say is a, is a slower instrument, for example. Um, and with photography, my understanding is that the faster it is like the F3.6 is going to produce sort of inherently um, brighter uh, photographs and won't require as long an exposure. But when you're using the telescope visually, um, that, has no, that has no impact. So images through, say, my five and a half inch telescope that I bought, which which was designed as a visual camera hybrid, um, you know, uh, five and a half inches there. Uh, if you if you look through it and, it and it was operating at, say, 40 power and it's an F3.6 and then you were able to get a five and a half inch um, F8 telescope and you look through it and it was operating at uh, 40 power. Um, the images would appear uh, just about identical. They're not going to appear any brighter or less brighter. Uh, the only differences you're going to see is maybe in the instrument design. And then as well, the, uh, the instruments that are faster um, are more difficult to optically align. So an F8 telescope is going to be a piece of cake. Um, you know, it's probably going to come aligned and maybe you don't even have to touch it. Whereas like my new instrument, which is F3.6, 
I'm going to be uh, saddling up to, to Shane and Mike a little bit to try to help uh, get that optical system lined up properly because it, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. So just, just kind of want to mention that as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point for sure. Yeah. Anything else to add on that one, Shane? Nope. So let's just see. Um, what can we expect when looking through telescopes? Uh, for example, uh, the difference between uh, stars and planets. What, what do stars look like through the telescope? Pretty much the same as they look without a telescope. <laughs> a star, um, a star remains stellar uh, no matter how much magnification. Now there's a little bit of a, I guess, kind of an optical illusion. Like a brighter star will appear like it's larger um, mm-hmm. and sometimes almost globular in a way. Um, mm-hmm. But really, the the you know that's just kind of your optics. Uh, I think playing tricks with you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, uh, yeah, a star with magnification still looks like a star. Yeah, that was the, the, and I'm really glad that's what you mentioned first, because when I first was gifted telescope for Christmas, when I was about, um, maybe six years old, I, uh, I set it up and I had these visions that I was going to point it at the star. I didn't know what the star was. And now I know it's Cirrus and it's a bright wintertime star. And I thought when I pointed at that star, I am going to see it as a round disc. I am going to see planets around that star. And I'm probably very likely going to see aliens whizzing around in stereotypical <laughs> UFO fashion. And, and I know it sounds funny, but I, I remember this very clearly. That this is what I thought was going to happen. And when I pointed at that star, I just saw that same star. And it was um, uh, maybe I could sense that it was brighter, but it was no larger there were no planets, and very most most importantly, and very most dis- disappointingly, uh, there was no aliens either. Mm. Well, <laughs> I, I don't I don't even know how to continue. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you're right. The stars just remain pinpoints. Now, you know, one of the other things, and this is what I what I discuss with my students a bit because this is a bit of a challenge. So, so when you get your star chart, the brighter stars. How do the brighter stars look in a star chart chain? Um, well, a star chart will reflect magnification with larger, or sorry, uh, magnitude uh, with larger circles. So like yeah. a real bright star on a star chart is going to be a much larger circle and yeah. real faint stars are just dots really usually. Yeah. yeah. But nowhere, nowhere does anybody ever tell beginners this, right? So they show up and they're like, why, why are these stars larger? And why are these stars smaller? They're all the same size to the telescope. Some are just brighter and fainter. But, but nobody ever says this. Yeah, yeah. No, that's <laughs> not, a good not point. That, not that clearly, right? Not not clear enough that a beginner is going to... Some people might, but it but it's one of those challenges for sure when people are starting out in this and they get these weird charts and it has large and small dots. Well, what the heck does all this mean, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, uh, that, that is a good point because they can, it can be confusing for sure. Yeah. How about planets? What, what do planets look like through the telescopes and... Uh, yeah. What do you think about that from a beginner's perspective? Well, so there's three planets within our solar system that I consider to be like, you know, real observable objects, meaning they can show you an awful lot of detail through a telescope. Now of those three, uh, one of them is Mars, but that's only every two years. Uh, yeah. So Mars has a elliptical orbit. And, um, every two years it's, uh, it's closer to earth. So Mm -hmm. during that, you know, favorable opposition, 
uh, Mars becomes uh, a, a great object to observe with the telescope. You can see yep. uh, the mare, so like kind of the darker regions uh, on on the surface of Mars. You can see the caps, uh, like the ice caps. Uh, sometimes you can see uh, some cloud, uh, like high level cloud at, at yep. the limbs, um, and then various other surface uh, uh, details. Yep. Um, but that's once every two years. Yep. Now, the other two planets where you can see detail uh, every year mm-hmm. uh, is Jupiter. So again, depending on your aperture, you can see multiple different bands like cloud bands. Um, you can see the great red spot. And then sometimes, uh, you know, under good conditions with the right aperture, you can also see some of the like festoons and jaggedness of those cloud bands and some of the color. Uh, it really, it can really reveal a lot. Uh, Jupiter yeah. has a, a lot of uh, stuff to observe, plus the positioning of the Galilean moons. Yeah, and then the uh, the final planet, which again can show you a lot of detail, uh, and this is every year. Uh, that's Saturn. Um, you can see the rings and all of their glory. Um, you can sometimes see the Cassini division as well as other variations in the rings. You can see the shadow of the rings cast upon uh, the disk of the planet. Um, and then you can sometimes see cloud bands on the disk of Saturn as well. And then some yeah. of its moons. So those three show a lot of detail. Now you can observe Neptune and Uranus. Um, and if you have the right amount of aperture, you can see a little bit of the color there, kind of the green and the aqua. Um, Pluto is not really observable in my mind in terms of detail. It will, it doesn't really matter what aperture you use. It will appear as a star. Um, and that's it. Um, now, uh, Venus, um, if we kind of swing back into the inner solar system, uh, Venus is very bright. You can observe the Venus phases because it looks kind of like a moon actually, uh, through, through the telescope. Um, and then during favorable times, uh, there's reports and you and I have, have logged these observations of, of being able to see some of the detail in the cloud bands of Venus, although that is a fairly yeah. challenging observation. Yeah. And then the last one, Mercury, I've never tried really to observe any detail on Mercury. I think there's some, well, I'll let you speak to Mercury. This is more your zone, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mercury and Venus, like just, just spotting them, I think for the, for the beginner, um, is going to be a challenge and seeing cloud detail on Venus is, uh, is definitely, um, a more challenging thing to try to see. And then, uh, trying to see surface detail on, on Mercury, uh, can only be expressed as, as an exercise in frustration where, where anything that, that hints at surface detail, um, should be counted as a huge victory because either you've, you've tried so hard, your, your eye is, is giving you feedback or you're just able to, to glance some sort of uh, albedo type, type feature uh, s- making its way, uh, you know, go portion of the way across the solar system and, and through our atm- thick atmosphere as, being, as, as Mercury is so low down. So, so yeah, I, I think that kind of covers it. You know, you got three really good objects and then, and then uh, a few that are, that are actually a fair bit more, more challenging uh, to take a look at. And then there's the moon. I mean, the moon is spectacular to see through, uh, through a small telescope, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. It is. Um, there is so much detail on the moon with any optical aid. Um, and a telescope really starts to show you a lot of the craters and craterlets and ridges and mountain ranges. Uh, there's just a ton of detail on the moon and, and really you can spend an entire, uh, that, that, if that's all you looked at, you could spend probably a lifetime just observing the moon and 
you know, looking for more and more detail and, and taking advantage of nights with really good seeing. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else to add to that bit? No, sir. That's all. Yeah. Okay. And then um, let's go and take a look at the next questions, which are how to prevent slash fix star spikes and star uh, trails. So uh, it says uh, star spikes, uh, um, you know, what, what are star spikes, uh, Shane, and, and uh, how, how could you fix those? Well, if I'm, if I interpret this correctly, I think the star spikes he's referring to are probably through a reflector, I'm guessing. Um, so through a reflector, there's a secondary mirror, there's what's called veins. So just like kind of some real thin metal arms, uh, four of them that hold the secondary mirror in place. Um, those, uh, cause an optical aberration that makes, uh, like a plus sign through a bright star or, or star spikes. Um, so the only way to really correct this is to stop using a reflector. That's one, (laughs) one option, but it's not really solving it. Obviously, uh, the other option, which I've never I've never tried on any of my reflectors, but, uh, most, most of the time when you buy a reflector, the, the veins that hold that secondary mirror in place are straight. You can get curved veins, which, uh, apparently get rid of the star spikes. Um, so that's, that, that is the real solution, uh, to getting rid of them. Uh, I'm not sure if there's others though, Chris, do you have any other insight there? You know what? I didn't put this in the notes, but, uh, Eric gave us a suggestion in the, in the last episode, he wrote us about using an off-axis mm. math, and that mm. would that would get rid of the star spikes. Of course, you're you're almost you're you're really creating a very large change in the fundamental working properties of your reflector at that point. And you'd hopefully want to have uh, probably a ten or twelve inch or larger instrument to do that. But like with his seventeen and a half, he was able to get a six and a half unobstructed um, spike preview um, by simply cutting uh, a, a smaller hole. Uh, that would fit between the uh, the veins of of his uh, seventeen and a half inch instrument, but I, I that that would do it too, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely, it would. Yeah, so so that's another technique. So so yeah, and and you know, it, it's just an aesthetic thing. I, I think you know, seeing those, I I never you know ever even thought of it as being a negative thing about about a reflector, and I certainly enjoy looking through reflectors and start it with a reflector and. Um, I've never been bothered by the star spikes. It's just, you know, when I, when I look through it, when I look through somebody's telescope, um, anybody's telescope, like a reflector that has them, I've, I can't say that I ever even really think about them. It's, they're not even on my radar. I find that um, it neither enhances nor detracts from the, from the view. I, I just, for some reason, I, I think, you know, they, they don't really impact the view in my mind at all. So I don't mind them. How about you? Yeah, they typically don't bother me. The only time is if I'm trying, and th- and this is like such a chance alignment, but if you're chasing down some double stars, sometimes that yeah. spike can be right over top of the companion you're trying to, to find. Or if you're struggling to split a double, that's always in the back of my mind, you know, like, oh, is the, is the companion on one of these spikes? You know? yeah. So that that can be a bit of an issue uh, if you're a double star person, but otherwise, yeah, I agree there. It, it's a pretty minor thing. And even when I notice it, I, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Like, you know, as much as I've, I've looked through other people's reflectors, I, I gotta say, I honestly don't even recall 
ever really even thinking about it. I, I'm, I'm sure I've noticed it. It's just that that's not where I place my focus. I'm, I'm looking to see, like, if we're looking at a, at a planet, I'm looking to see the detail I can see on the planet. Or if we're looking at, at deep sky objects, I'm looking at that. And then as well, I think, you know, a lot of the time when we, we are looking at fainter stuff, um, like, the, they're just not going to be visible, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anything else to add to, to that uh, bit on the star spikes? No, no, that's, that's all I got. And how about the uh, star trails? Like, I, I think if he's asking about removing star trails, I think that is more of a photography question. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, a couple things with that. I, again, we're not really astrophotographers. Um, I do, I've dabbled just, you know, very slightly in this space. So, um, if you want to get rid of star trails, number one, get a mount that tracks and tracks accurately, do a proper alignment, all of that kind of stuff. And then, and if you achieve that, you can do longer exposures without star trails. So that's option one, option two, do much shorter exposures and then start yeah. stacking your frames. Uh, so that works. Um, and if you, um, if you, if you have like a real short focal length slash wide field of view, you could probably get away with, I don't know, I'm guessing about 20 second exposures without star trails. So what you can do is just reduce the amount of time you hold the shutter open for. Um, now if you're doing like a long focal length, like let's say you have a 200 millimeter, uh, lens, uh, I don't know, you might get five seconds of exposure time before you start to notice the star trails. Um, hard to say, uh, and the reason it's hard to say is I just don't have a lot of experience doing astrophotography, but but really that's it. Shorter exposure exposures or uh, get a mount that tracks. Sounds good to me. I'm not a photographer at all whatsoever. So uh, that sounds like great advice. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Excellent. How about some uh, tricks to seeing? I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, he, he had made a couple suggestions and then I added some of my own. I made my own little list here, Shane, but uh, what, what sort of tricks and advice do you have for somebody who's uh getting into uh, looking at the night sky um, and it's, and it's still relatively new to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is a, a great question that uh, really, uh, you know, we could potentially make an episode out of just this one question, but um, some, some things that I would recommend about just, you know, the actual part of observing or, or seeing is um, start with lower power uh, eyepieces, you know, and, and get the right field of view that matches your star charts for whatever object you're looking for. And then once you have the right field of view, that's when you can start increasing the magnification. Uh, some objects take magnification really well, some don't. Um, and then we're always limited by the atmosphere on earth. So mm-hmm. sometimes the atmosphere doesn't allow for high magnifications, uh, because it's really unstable up in the sky. And if that's the case, you dial it back. Um, but you know, kind of beyond that, if you're, if you're chasing some, uh, deep sky objects that are maybe uh, a little faint or harder to see, um, some tricks that people use is, is just tapping the telescope to create a little bit of a jiggle. Um, and that excites the eye. So sometimes that'll help you find, uh, fainter objects. Um, but maybe the most common one is just using your peripheral vision. Um, and you know, you and I, and, and many other, uh, astronomers have, have used this technique before where you don't look directly at the object. You, you look just off of the object and try to observe it through your peripherals. So, um, like our, the peripheral of our eyes is just more sensitive to light. So you're sometimes able to see fainter objects, 
um, with that method. Um, yeah, you know, we, there's, we, sorry, just, yeah, we typically call that a bird division, eh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, yeah, thanks for that. Or, or in um, my case, averted imagination. Yeah, well, there's there's <laughs> averted imagination definitely is uh, is a thing. So <laughs> I think we're all guilty of that from time to time. Yeah. Um, you know, there's filters out there. Uh, you know, for a beginner, I would say don't worry too much about filters. Um, when I was early on in my observing, when I had my eight inch uh, sky watcher. Um, you know, you, you had visions of like, you know, other solar systems and aliens whizzing around when you looked at stars, Mm -hmm. when I was going to look at a planet, like say Jupiter, I was expecting it to look very much like a photograph because my only experience, uh, prior to that was when I was young, I looked at Saturn through a a refractor and it looked like a photograph, which Saturn often does. But when I looked at Jupiter, my heart was broken. Um, I could barely see two cloud bands and that was it. And, um, you know, there was issues around that. Like, I think the seeing was poor and and a few other things going on. But anyway, I thought I could solve this with planetary filters. You know, if I just bought some colored filters, boom, I would have like these amazing views of Jupiter. Yeah. That's not the case. Um, filters, uh, particularly for planets, I think have very marginal gains, uh, in terms of seeing stuff yeah. or enhancing your seeing. So I never really use them. And I don't think that they're, you know, I, I just don't like them to be honest. I, I prefer just a straight through view. Yeah. Um, and then with deep sky stuff, um, again, you know, the, the filters can help, but I wouldn't start with that. Um, you know, a UHC filter does help with some objects. Um, and there's, there's a few objects out there that without the right filter, you just won't see them. But, um, you know, that's something that a beginner can think about maybe a little ways down the road. Uh, at least that's my opinion. Um, you know, I, I think there's so much to see without a filter that, uh, I wouldn't bother. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I most, I'm going to say, I mostly agree with you, Shane, as, as usual, I just have a slightly different take. So, um, but I, I, I agree that uh, beginners shouldn't really wade into the filters. I would say that typically people start getting filters sooner than later. And I think that it's because, um, people, uh, see the price tag. I think filters uh, can be as inexpensive as 15 or, or 20 bucks, uh, a filter, and that is uh, that's very attractive. So uh, a lot of time, people will go and buy uh, four or five uh, different filters, and then kind of go off to the races. Um, but but you know they're really just spending money on something that uh, that has a pretty a subtle or marginal uh, improvement at best. Um, and then you know people will ask me about them, and I'm like, well, well, don't buy them. But if you're stuck on buying them go and buy the Lumicon filters because they're made with optical glass. And a lot of the time, the regular filters that people buy um, are going to be made with uh, glass that might have a lot of imperfections or even they, they can be good depending on the ones you get, but sometimes they're just like a, like a coated um, piece of like uh, just regular glass. Like it's not glass that's, that's of any sort of optical quality. Um, and so it's going to, detract from the view more than it's going to, going to add, uh, to the view. Um, so typically I agree. Yeah. Um, people getting filters, uh, there's, there's some techniques to using them. Um, and I think those techniques are more like intermediate techniques, maybe advanced into advanced techniques on, 
actually how to use the filters. So I, I think that they're inexpensive, true, but at the same time, uh, the actual application of them re requires um, you know, some, some techniques. So there, there is a way around this though. There's, there's uh, a, a couple filters that, that I will recommend if, if people are, are really interested in getting filters and it's, it's a bit of a cheat. Um, and so it's sort of a funny thing. Um, it, it's gonna very much simplify the process for people. Um, so I've bought a lot of filters over the years and I am a filter user and will filter my views of, of Mars and the planets and use a lot of specialized planetary eyepieces for my observations. Um, but the batter uh, contrast filter um, is a filter that I found in more than 90% of the cases will beat any individual filter that I, that I use on a planet. So you can just go out if you want to have filtered views just go out and buy the batter contrast filter in a one and a quarter inch size because that's what you're going to use for planetary observing and uh, that's going to take care of the vast majority of any filter needs that you will ever have for planetary observing yeah no that's a that's a great point one one other thing i want to mention though about seeing is seeing uh is is a, is a skill and it gets better with time yeah. so if you're new to astronomy know that you may be frustrated at the start, potentially, maybe not, but if you are, know that the more time you spend at the eyepiece and the more time you spend observing, you will get better at it. It's just like if you're learning to golf or you want to be a swimmer or race a car, uh, you know, most people are not amazing at any of that stuff the first time they try. You know, it takes uh, dedication and it takes repetition and you get better at that stuff. And observing through a telescope is no different. Yeah. And no joke, while you said that, somebody drove by on a golf cart with racing rims. Okay. <laughs> um, so maybe they're learning to race a golf cart. Okay. Well, one thing we didn't talk too much about, Shane, I think you sort of uh, hinted at it, is uh, dark adaption and, and getting, ah. uh, getting the eye dark adapted. So yeah. I want to mention this because this is sort of more important than ever. I think it, it sort of used to be. Um, easier to accomplish because I think the the main advice we would give is that um, well you need to make or buy a little red flashlight you can just use like one of those um, five dollar flashlights and put some red filters on it or get some red nail polish or some red duct tape and cover it over with a couple layers of that uh, three layers typically dim it right down and then when you're out at night you just use the red light and your eye um, will Will be uh, will be allowed to open up. Your pupil will dilate, and you'll be able to see um, more fainter things uh, in the nighttime sky. Right? That's sort of the general advice. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I totally forgot about it. But dark adaptation uh, makes a huge difference on deep sky objects. Um, if you're observing planets or the moon, really, that doesn't matter. In fact, uh, I think there's some. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily studies, but certainly reports that, you know, if you're observing the planets, actually looking at a white light occasionally can help you see some detail yeah. on the planets. Um, so, but yeah, for sure, if you're doing dark sky or deep sky stuff, um, dark adaptation is a game changer. Like it's, yeah. it's huge. Yeah. But now we have, um, sort of the added dimension of, uh, smartphones and, and other devices. Mm -hmm. People really want to 
grab those and use the astronomy software that's on them, or or if if not, at the, at the very least, be uh, texting with like whoever, or or just doing stuff in general on the on the smartphone. And I see this all the time. We'll be out at at the dark sky site um, doing public outreach. And, uh, you know, we have maybe 15 people in line and three or four of them inevitably have their smartphone out. They're staring at a bright white screen and then they come up and they're like, well, I can't see anything. And then they just turn around and they're out of there. Right. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, that's because you like, you know, constricted your eye. And here you are. You've come all the way out to a dark sky site. And uh, now you've just spent, uh, you know, the past 15 minutes in a line looking at a bright thing. And now you want to go and look at a faint thing and uh, human physiology physiology just doesn't work that way. Right. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. And then we have the, uh, the folks that want to use, and I know people really want to use the astronomy software out at the dark, at a dark location, whether they're uh, a beginner astronomer or, or a member of the public that's showing up and, uh, and they'll dim the phone down a little bit and try to look at the stars. And I think that is maybe a good way to do it at the very early and entry uh, positions, but uh, you and I both found that in order to to keep the eye, um, you know, sensitive to the really faint starlight we're trying to collect, that uh, I, I mean, I could never get my devices dimmed down enough that it wasn't impacting my night vision uh, pretty significantly. I don't know about you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And even when you dim them down and do all of the red colors and all of that stuff, if your phone like goes to sleep or like locks itself, when you unlock it, that that impact uh like the dimness is there, but the red the redness isn't. So like if your if your wallpaper or or screensaver whatever it is, uh like when your phone is locked, if it's if it's bright, you're, you know, you're going to see that. And, uh, it just yeah. takes that one flash and you've lost your dark adaptation and, and the timer restarts from pretty much zero at that point. Yeah. So, uh, our recommendation, I, I think, Shane, I, I don't speak for you, but I, I think our recommendation would be that people should make their own little red flashlight and don't try to red out your, uh, your cell phone. Cause I've even tried that cause mm-hmm. I don't care. And, uh, and that doesn't work. They're just way too bright. Um, so make your own little red flashlight or buy one. They're 25 bucks. I think it's well worth the investment and uh, get a copy of uh, Terrence Dickinson's book, uh, Night Watch, which has all the charts that you'll ever need. Because one of the things that a beginner will not realize is that although it sounds awesome that you can download the software and there's lots of great free software from uh, Sky Safari or Stellarium, or I think there's several more now. Um, but one thing that uh, that people aren't aware of is that that software allows you to zoom in and zoom out. Hey, but doesn't that sound great? Well, it does. But unfortunately, when you're out under the night sky, you don't know what that scale is. In fact, I find that scale is hard to adjust to the stars. So you need to match the scale of the application to the scale of the stars that you're looking at and the orientation and a few other things. Now, some of them are kind of starting to do this automatically, but it's still in its early days. And uh, that creates a challenge because sometimes people say, Hey, I want to look at whatever. And they're zoomed way in they're, They have like the zoom level set to like the 12 inch 50 power uh, telescope view of like the Andromeda galaxy, but they just want to find out where it is in the night sky uh, they just haven't realized that that's that's what they've done, and that's uh, something that's gonna gonna present more challenges than uh, than than an observing aid. I think anyway. That's just my opinion. What's yours? Yeah, yeah, I can't agree more. Um, 
nothing beats a red light and you know, some, some paper, you know, whether it's a book or observing lists, um, yeah. and, uh, you know, the best red lights are the ones that are dimmable, like the, uh, I think it's the Skywatcher one, or maybe it's the Orion one. They have just a little wheel on it that allows you to really tone it right down to the point where you, you don't even really know the light is on. So yeah. the, I, the idea is use a red light or amber light, but also use as little of that light as possible, because even though it's red or amber, it's better for your, your dark adaptation, but it's still, it's still light, you know, it's still yeah. going to take a little bit away from your dark adaptation. So use as little as possible. Yeah. Yeah. No, sounds, uh, sounds good. And, uh, one of the other things, uh, we often recommend is using binoculars. Maybe people don't think about using binoculars, but I think using binoculars is, uh, is a really great way for, uh, for beginners to enter, uh, into the uh, world of astronomy. Yeah, it, it really is. And, um, uh, for a couple of reasons, like binoculars are just easier to use. Like you really just need the binoculars, assuming you mm-hmm. get like eight by forties or, or something manageable in the hand. Um, so they're, they're, they're easier to, um, to acquire. So the, you know, kind of the entry, uh, into astronomy is just simpler that way. And the other thing is there's a, a number of people that maybe aren't into astronomy, but they already have binoculars, yeah. you know, whether it's for sporting events or bird watching. So yeah you know, just know you can use those quite effectively for astronomy as well. Yeah. Uh, one of the other questions that, uh, that, that Chef Ozzy put to us is finding and identifying uh, stars and globular clusters and uh, nebulas and, and all this kind of stuff, the galaxies. Um, and, and I think it's just a learning process of, of starting um, from where you know, like, you know, you start learning some of the larger patterns, maybe you already know what the Big Dipper uh, pattern looks like, and you can slowly trace out like the greater Ursa Major uh, constellation or, or use the Big Dipper to find the Little Dipper and find the W of Cassiopeia, like find those sort of easier uh, constellations. And in fact, again, like I'm going to point people back to uh, Terrence Dickinson's Nightwatch book, because um, he actually really walks people through this in a very um, easy to use and an easy to understand uh, manner. And then um, again, for finding nebulous star clusters and galaxies, well, um, once you're able to identify the star patterns, uh, then you'll be able to use the the more detailed star charts. There's some in Nightwatch, but then uh, like a good beginner um, star atlas would be something like uh, the Pocket Atlas by Sky and Telescope. They make both a pocket and a jumbo atlas now, I think. Yeah, I'm quite interested, actually. Like I have the Pocket Atlas and it's frayed around the edges and bent up yeah. and, and it's well used. And, and yeah. you know, it's even kind of wrinkly from just getting heavy dew on it. Um, so the jumbo Atlas is the exact same. It's just a larger format. So, you know, some of us that are getting a little older, it's just easier to read. And, and also like with our comments about using red lights, uh, and as dim as possible, having just larger charts, uh, you know, helps you see uh, what you need to see on them, uh, at night, because it is a little more challenging with a red light. Yeah. So I, I think that's good general advice. I, I think just to, to start with a, a basic guide, to start learning the star patterns. And then as you, as you move beyond the star patterns and start putting optics to the sky, then um, those patterns are what will guide you ultimately to, uh, to, to the deep sky objects, as we call uh, star clusters and globulars and nebulas and galaxies. Yeah. Okay. Anything else to add to that? No, that's it. Um, 
Barlow lenses and how to use them. Um, I'm going to read this, uh, dug this up. A Barlow lens is an optical tube containing a lens element that uh, diverges light passing uh, uh, through it. It's named after the English physicist, mathematician, Peter Barlow. And Barlow lenses add a, a secondary lot of magnifications to each of the eyepieces uh, that you're using while maintaining or sometimes increasing uh, eye relief. And I know there's, there's a couple different types. We have... Uh, Oh, uh, regular Barlow's and, and that's how they work. And then we have, uh, you know, sort of the, the power mates or the image amplifiers, which, um, increase the magnification without messing too much with the, uh, uh, with, with the eye relief. Um, yeah. So, so Shane, how, how do you use that? That's what a Barlow is. It's basically just like, a like a cylinder with a lens in it that you can stick, um, your eye, your other eyepieces that you already own into it. Um, typically they come in like two X and three X or so, and you can get a variety of different magnifications. But so if you have, uh, an eyepiece that gives you 50 power now, it's going to give you a hundred power when you put it in the two X. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts on the Barlow lens and how it's used? How you, how do you use them? Um, yeah, like a Barlow can, um, uh, be used in a, in a number of ways. So maybe a more common way is somebody will buy, you know, two to three eyepieces. And then let's just say for argument's sake, you have three eyepieces and you buy a two times Barlow. Well, the Barlow essentially doubles like your eyepiece collection in a way, because now you have, instead of just three different focal length eyepieces uh, with the Barlow, you now essentially have six different focal lengths. Um, so it really, uh, I guess, expands the possibilities or the range of your magnifications uh, that you can use with your telescope. Um, and in fact, you know, I, I've read about some people that just buy one eyepiece and then they'll buy two to three Barlows. Um, yeah. so, you know, if you buy say the 24 millimeter panoptic, um, it's a great wide field inch and a quarter eyepiece. Uh, if you have a two times Barlow, you now have a 12 millimeter setup essentially, which is kind of a nice medium power. If you add a three times Barlow, you're now getting into some higher powers because that 24 millimeter eyepiece is now operating at eight millimeters. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, if you stick with the teleview line, you can also get a five times, uh, actually, I think the five times might be a, a power mate, yeah. but, um, now it's you're like, yeah, sorry. It's like a Barlow of sorts. It's, it's yeah. an image amplifier. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the 24 millimeters divided by five, you're now getting into some fairly high power. That's a yeah. 4.8 millimeter equivalency. Um, so, you know, one really good eyepiece and then three Barlows gives you a, a fairly impressive range. Um, so, you know, they do add options. Now, the thing I will say about Barlow's is, is you're adding more glass to that light path and yeah. not all Barlow's are equal. So a Barlow that's not well-made can degrade your image or your viewing a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, I've seen it. Um, there's nights where I was using a two times Barlow and I thought, oh, the seeing is, is okay. You know, but I've reached the limit. And yep. then this one night I put in a two and a half times power mate after the two times Barlow sort of seemed to reach its limit and the power mate, it was like, it, it's like, it took a, 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 like the, a layer of bad seeing and just got rid of it. Mm. Now the seeing didn't change. It just, the, the power mate that I was using was far superior to the Barlow I was using and the Barlow mm. was degrading my image a bit. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I, I kind of do this. So I have, uh, I, I, a number of years ago, I bought a really expensive eyepiece, the Dr. 12 and a half. 
Um, it's the only eyepiece doctor makes, which is very fortunate for my pocketbook. And, uh, and, and what I've done with it, it, it's become my cornerstone eyepiece. And I have, uh, uh, a set of Barlow's I use with it. And, uh, and that 12 and a half becomes an eight millimeter. It becomes a, uh, four and a half millimeter and it becomes like a, like a six and a quarter millimeter, uh, give or, give or take a little bit on all those, um, which, you know, really gives me, um, you know, a, a very wide array of sort of medium to high power in, in the telescopes that I have. And then I use uh, either my 32 mass AM or my 40 millimeter XW as, as my low power, depending on the instrument I'm using. So uh, I can get by very happily just with two eyepieces and, uh, and a fistful of Barlow's, so to speak. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a good option uh, for people to consider. Yeah. Uh, last question, then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll end, I think. Um, and, and I like this one uh, because I've heard people using this more and more is uh, what is the Bortle scale and uh, how do you use it? Well, uh, if I can just start on this one, Shane, do you mind? Mm-hmm. No, go for it. Yeah. So the Bortle scale was created by John Bortle and published in the February edition uh, in 20, 2001 of, of Sky and Telescope magazine. And I remember getting that and reading it and uh, loving that article. And uh, basically what it is, what it is, is a measure of sky brightness used for determining uh, the visibility or perhaps the invisibility of faint objects in the nighttime sky. And it's really just a measure of your light pollution. And what they've done is, uh, is they've uh, sort of uh, coordinated sky brightness with these different colors. So for example, um, the darkest sky will be um, a black color. And the next darkest maybe was very minimal light pollution that will be gray. Then you get like a blue and then a dark green and then a green and a pale green and then a yellow. And then um, I think like an orange and then a red and then a white. White would be like the worst. You're in the downtown core of, uh, you know, maybe like a really big city like New York. Although I know there's like dark areas in around New York or maybe like Chicago or like even in Regina, I know like the very downtown core place has like a tiny little pixel of, of white. And then once you get outside of that, you get into the red, which is still very light polluted. And then once you get beyond red, you're, you're starting to really be able to see uh, more and more stars. That's how it works. I think there's like seven levels to it. So I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that's sort of the, the really basic uh, outline to it. And then what people are doing now is they'll say, um, well, I live in a Bortle red zone or I live in a Bortle green zone or something like that. Um, and it's sort of a, a more recent phenomenon, I think made popular because the uh, the clear sky clock and the clear sky charts, um, that's what they use to, to denote how, how dark the areas are. And I think the um, amateur astronomers, especially uh, more newcomers since 2001 are, are simply adopting um, that scale. So I'm, I'm not sure what your thoughts are on it, Shane. Um, you know, I, I don't actually use the Bortle scale very much. Um, you know, I just look for limiting magnitude. So when I'm out, uh, under a sky, one of the first, especially if it's a new sky, one of the first things I'll do is just see, you know, how faint can I, you know, how faint are the stars that I can see uh, and then judge the sky based on that. So, um, it does align, you know, with, uh, with all these scales, but, um, uh, it, it, it is a handy place when, or a handy thing to know when you are evaluating potential places to observe. Yeah. I, uh, I, I like the Bortle scale. I do find it a little bit disorienting because, um, I'm not sure why this is. I, I think that it's, 
it's sort of a general overview and it's good for that. So for example, um, if you've never been to a site before and you're looking at the Bordel scale, I think it can help you set some expectations, right? So, um, you know, if you're, if you're looking for a vacation spot or you're going to a vacation spot, you know, like maybe it's a place you're going to have a car and you can drive around a bit. You're like, well, I want to get to a really dark site as dark as I can get within 30 minutes of wherever I'm staying. And, and you can kind of use that to help guide you. And then, um, you know, sometimes you can be lucky and, and somebody's already scattered at some nearby sites and that can be handy. But, but if not, then I think the Bordel scale can be, uh, uh, can be a good measure. And there's like uh, overlays on Google Earth that, that you can use and the clear sky clock and the clear sky chart and all that kind of stuff. But um, but then I think sometimes you can get sort of overly relied upon. Like you said, I use the um, just the limiting visual magnitude, which is looking up towards the zenith and seeing how faint a star I can see. And then uh, using that to kind of evaluate. Uh, and I'll, I'll give a really good example. I was uh, talking with uh, a, a, one of our most long-term listeners and and, uh, you know, I'm sure they are listening and, uh, and, it, and it's fine, but we were trying to figure out like the difference between my site and their site. And so my site was coming out as a Bortle 4 and so was theirs. Um, but, uh, but certainly I could see a lot more stars from my site. And I was trying to determine, well, uh, is it because I'm more experienced or like, do they just have a lot more sort of local light? Because they could be under a Bortle 4 sky. But then, uh, uh-oh, they've got uh, a giant street lamp in their backyard or a lot of neighbors that have a lot of lights around them. And uh, I'm fortunate, I have like, lots of neighbors here, but they all keep their lights um, pretty low. And, and uh, whenever they do have them on, they're very low and well-shielded lights. So I'm very fortunate that way. So my Bortle Foresight, I might be seeing stars into the sixth magnitude, whereas at their Bortle Foresight, they might be struggling to get to the fifth magnitude. I can see the Milky Way really well, uh, but they cannot. So... Not, not all Bortle sites are, are sort of created equal. You need to really be present in the site to, uh, to get that fixed. And I think the best thing is, like, the, like you said, the limiting visual magnitude. How faint can you see? From their site, they can see five, even though it's rated as Bortle 4. From my site, I can see into the magnitude 6 range. Um, it's also rated as, as a Bortle 4. So uh, does that make sense? Yeah, for sure it does. Yeah. Okay. Do you have anything to add to that bit? No, no. I think we should probably wrap it up. Wrap it up. I know. And guess how many notes I am scrolling by three pages of notes. And so we have to end it. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have more to talk about than we'll ever have time for. Uh, thanks for joining me, Shane. That was a really great discussion on beginner um, observing and how to get started in beginner astronomy for, uh, and, and thanks again to, uh, to Chef Ozzy for the suggestion. If any listeners have any suggestions for shows like that, and, uh, and they're really keen on something, just uh, send us the show idea. And if you want, just bullet point like uh, Chef Ozzy did and give us uh, seven or eight bullets to, to work with. And uh, we'll give our spin on it and, and give you an episode back. Um, I thought it was really fun, Shane. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did as well. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.